Father, we come before you and we do praise you for your providential hand in our country and our society and the preservation of life. And Lord, we do celebrate that. We rejoice in that. But we also uh, come to you understanding that there is a, another directive, which is to take the gospel to all nations, and it's to introduce people to Jesus Christ so that they have the right impression of who he is and they have a, a clarity of who he is and what he came to do. And I pray that this message will help in that regard. I pray for anyone here who might be on the outside looking in. Perhaps they don't necessarily go to church. Perhaps they've gone to different kinds of churches. I, I pray that as I, I preach today that they will have uh, a profound sense of the nature and work of your son. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, my parents' favorite TV show is Shark Tank. You guys ever seen that? I'm seeing a lot of people my parents' age nodding their heads. Must be a generational thing. But if you've never seen the show, you have various entrepreneurs who do a product presentation in front of the five sharks. These are successful, wealthy investors who decide whether or not they will invest in your product to help bring it to the next level. And there's all this tension about whether or not the presenters will procure some investment. And roughly half of them get an investment and the other half do not. And so the question is, why do some find success while others do not? Well, there was a study done of 495 Shark Tank presentations. I found this on the internet. You can find all kinds of jewels on the internet. And they tried to determine what is the number one factor, what is the number one predictor of success. This is what they found. Those contestants who make a grand entrance who walk onto the stage with confidence, making eye contact with the judges, smiling and waving at them, gesturing towards them, have a significantly higher probability of procuring investment. And it kind of goes with the old adage, right? To quote Will Rogers, you never get a second chance to make a first impression. And the speculation is when they come up and they make that good first impression, they signal that this is the kind of person I want to work with. They're agreeable. I'm willing to invest in this product. Now, we have been slowly moving through the Gospel of Luke. And in the Gospel of Luke, there is a buildup to this moment. It opens with, an angel appearing to Zechariah in the temple announcing the birth of John the Baptist. And then there is another announcement where an angel appears to Mary to announce the birth of Jesus. John the Baptist is born to a barren old, uh, older woman, Elizabeth. Jesus is born of a virgin. When John the Baptist is born, his father, who was previously cursed with muteness because he did not believe the message of the angel, is now able to speak, right? There's a miracle. When Jesus is born, angels appear to the shepherds. Jesus is then dedicated in the temple, 
very clear that his parents are God-fearers who do everything according to the book of the law. We find an incident where Jesus is in the temple, young Jesus, 12 years old, and he is conversing with the temple leadership, clearly displaying a real knack and understanding of the word of God. And then you have John the Baptist ministry where the whole focus of the nation is on this man who's preaching a baptism of repentance, right? You have all of these events and now Jesus makes his first impression. The wait is over and this is what we read. Now just so you know, I'm covering Luke 21 through 38. There is a long 77-name genealogy here. I'm going to edit it, okay? <laughs> now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus had also been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with you, I am well pleased. Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, I'm going to skip to 31, the son of Nathan, the son of David, fast forward to 34, the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham, and finally in verse 38, the son of Adam and the son of God. This is the grand entrance of Jesus. And this is where he makes his first impression. And what's really fascinating is a lot of the themes of this first impression get pulled through the book of Luke, the goal of which is to persuade people to follow him. If you will, they are to invest their lives in him. And so this answers the question, why is Jesus worthy of investment? Why should I keep on reading the gospel of Luke? Who is Jesus that makes him so special? And this is what we see. We see that one, Jesus is righteous. Two, Jesus is recognized by God. And third, Jesus is related to all mankind. This big reveal about Jesus makes an impression that's designed to impress you into investing your life in him. So we'll look at these one by one. One is that Jesus is righteous. Let's look at verse 21. Now, when all the people were baptized, and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying. Now, here we see Jesus' righteousness in action. He does two righteous acts, which reflect an incredible degree of, of humility. Jesus is presented as a real deal, somebody who practiced what he preaches. Now, when you look at many of the great men and women of history, uh, if you look close enough, you find out that they have feet of clay. I just finished a biography of Winston Churchill, who you could say, credibly, saved Western civilization. But he had some very racist views that he absorbed from the thinking at that time. Rudyard Kipling's White Man's Burden, the goal of the white race is to civilize the dark people, was something that he absorbed. That doesn't take away from his great works, but it means he can't give an unqualified endorsement of him. FDR did wonderful things as far as helping to lead our country to victory in World War II, but he incarcerated Japanese Americans just because 
of their race and their ethnicity, right? That wasn't right. If you look hard enough, you can find a flaw in every man. And so we are very cautious in giving any unqualified endorsement. And so you look at Jesus, well, we do have that one incident where he showed up in the temple, right, as 12 years old, but there were 30 effective uh, silent years. How do we know that he didn't have a child out of wedlock? How, how do we know that he didn't rip off somebody in a carpentry deal? Uh, how do we know that during those silent years that he was who he says he was? Well, the first impression of Jesus demonstrates a degree of righteousness, specifically humility, which is at the heart of righteousness, right? Somebody who's humble believes God is the center of all good and glory. They're not about their own glory, but somebody else's. You see this in two activities. One, he's baptized, and two, he prays. Now, remember that John the Baptist, when he was baptizing, it was a baptism of repentance. And remember the winsome greeting he gave to people who wanted to be baptized? You brood of vipers, who told you to flee from the wrath to come? Basically, he's calling all these people who are approaching him a bunch of snakes. You are sons of the most famous snake. You're sons of Satan. You guys are just coming because you sense that there's righteous coming wrath for you and you want to find some sort of refuge and you're coming to me. And yet, here comes Jesus to be baptized by John and John's like, whoa, wait a second. This pretty much applies to everybody except for you, Jesus. Why do you want to get baptized? And Jesus explains, well, the Bible explains in, in Matthew 3, 13 through 15. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? But Jesus answered, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. John hesitates to baptize Jesus on account of his moral life, right? You're, you're an exception here. This is not for you. So why was he baptized? Well, it was to fulfill all righteousness. Now, I don't believe that this is because it was mandated that everybody is baptized by John's baptism. It wasn't mandatory at the time. Clearly, Jesus would have been an exception. The mandatory baptism that all believers to experience, that's something that's commanded in, in Acts. Well, really, in, at the end of Matthew. But we see that in Acts after we are baptized by the Holy Spirit. But rather, there's another purpose here. Jesus is identifying with all those people who are getting baptized. In Isaiah 53, 12, Therefore I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for transgressors. You know, when Jesus was being baptized, he was identifying himself as a sinner. He was identifying himself with other sinners. 
This would be like a prison chaplain who has a very fruitful ministry up in Lansing. And then he's told that they're not going to allow prison chaplains anymore. You can't come in from the outside and minister to these men because you might bring in or some other disease. And so this chaplain decides, well, then I will identify with these prisoners and I want to live in prison with them. Right? That is what Jesus is doing for the sake of the flock. He's willing to identify with them, to bear the reproach of baptism, just like that chaplain's willing to bear the reproach of being incarcerated so that he can identify and minister to other people. This is an act of humility. Secondly, you see that as he was being baptized, he was praying. Luke makes this a point of emphasis because prayer is such an important part of Jesus' ministry as we go throughout Luke. Before he is going to confront the, the religious leaders, according to Luke 5.16, he would withdraw to a desolate place and pray. Before he picks the 12 disciples, Luke 6, 12 through 13, in these days he went out to the mountain to pray, and all night he continued in prayer to God, and when the day came, he called his disciples and chose from them 12, whom he named apostles. The night before he was going to be arrested, what did he do? Luke 22, 41 through 42. And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw and knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus would pray that Peter's faith would not fail. He would teach his disciples parables on prayer. You see, the measure of righteousness in many ways is shown by an active prayer life, right? A dependence upon God and not yourself. Understanding that he is the source of your strength. You submit to his will, not your own. That is how he lived his life. He was a righteous man who had a humble righteousness. Therefore, he's worthy of our investment. Secondly, he's worthy of our investment because Jesus is recognized by God. Now, you think about investing in a new car. You don't just buy a car blind, right? I mean, you could, but we would think less of you, and rightfully so. You at least read maybe a customer review or you take it for a test drive, or better yet, you talk to your friend who's a mechanic and say, what do you think about this car? So when we look at Jesus, it would help if we had some sort of endorsement. What do you think about him? And we get one in 21. When Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens were opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form, like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Now as a sports fan, I love watching replays. When Mario Chalmers hit that shot in 2008, I watched that replay multiple times and even focused on different faces in the crowd as he hit that shot. And I think about what it would be like to be in heaven to watch the replay of the resurrection. Right? I'm not sure if they're going to do that, but wouldn't that be great to see? Watching the soldiers collapse, seeing how the stone moved, seeing how quickly Jesus emerged out of the tomb. But I think another great replay to watch would be this event right here. 
Jesus is plunged into the water. He starts praying. And next thing you know, this, there's this crack in the sky. And there's this passage between the throne room of God and Jesus. He's looking up and this bodily form comes down like a dove. It's not a dove. It's like a dove. Right? It doesn't dive bomb on Jesus like a hawk. It alights on Jesus like a dove. And then there's this booming voice that says, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. I mean, this was a moment. All three members of the Trinity are present as Jesus is about to start his ministry. So this is spectacular to say the least. I mean, this gives quite an impression. Now, there's two things I want to focus on. Number one is the presence of the Holy Spirit coming down on Jesus. Now, we are a Trinitarian church. We believe that all that makes God God is true of Jesus. He always was God, right? All the power, the, all the omnis, right? Omnipotence, omniscience, all that is present in Jesus. And so you look at this passage and, and you think, what's the Holy Spirit doing with Jesus? I mean, why did he need the Holy Spirit? Now hear me out, and this is going to require you to think. Often there is a temptation that when you think about Jesus being God and think about him primarily through that lens, we attribute everything that he did to his godness. And so when he's tempted in the wilderness, we think, well, of course he passed a temptation. He's God. We would not expect anything less. When he lived the perfect life, we think, well, of course he lived the perfect life. He's God. Now, this is where it gets troubling. If Jesus lived his life primarily out of his godness, he becomes a very difficult example to follow. Right? It's kind of like, you need to play basketball like LeBron James. Well, I can't. That is impossible. See, Jesus, we're called to, to walk in his steps, right? 1 Peter 2.21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you and as, as an example so that you might follow in his steps. Right? There is an expectation that we live like Jesus. What would Jesus do is a legitimate question that we're supposed to figure out and replicate. We're told in Philippians 2.5, have this mind among yourselves, which is your Christ Jesus. Well, you're supposed to have the mind of Jesus. You're supposed to think like him. John 15.12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Jesus says, the love you should have for each other, you're supposed to have as well. Just like I love you, you love them. Now, we can just say, well, I can never love like God, so that's impossible. I can never think like God, so having the mind of Christ is impossible. I can never be like God in that sense, have the power of God, so walking with him is impossible. You see, this is where the humanity of Christ, that everything that makes a man a man is true of Christ, is an important doctrine. And so there is a, a way of trying to harmonize this, right? How can Jesus be fully God and fully man. What happened to his divine attributes when he came to earth? How do you explain that Jesus had to learn how to walk and make 
words and make sentences and learn how to read, right? How do you explain that if he was omniscient the whole time? This is where the Paul answers this question very helpfully in Philippians 2, 6 through 7. He talks about Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. He decided not to use his divine attributes when he took on human form. He had them. He could have used them if he chose to, but he chose not to exercise them or use them. He chose to live life as a human in every sense. Now, this raises another question. If he chose to live his life as a human in every sense, how do you explain the miracles? Didn't he use his godness to accomplish his miracles? Well, when you look at some of the other miracles in the Bible, you often have a term like the Spirit of God came upon them. And the Spirit of God accomplished these miracles. Jesus was directed by the Spirit, and he was empowered by the Spirit. One member of the Trinity chose not to use his divine power, but instead relied on another member of the Trinity to enable that to happen. When the Holy Spirit alighted on Jesus, the Holy Spirit empowered him for ministry. In fact, so much so, do you remember when Jesus is confronted by the scribes and Pharisees? And they're looking at all his miracles and explain, how do you do all these miracles? And they say, the reason why Jesus is able to do all of this is because he's manipulating demons. He's getting demons to do his bidding. And remember what Jesus says they just did? They blasphemed who? His power? They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. They're attributing the work of the Holy Spirit who's doing all these miracles to demons. Jesus primarily did all his work through the power of the Holy Spirit. So he was a man and the divinity was exercised through the power of the Holy Spirit. Peter, when he talks about the salvation of the Gentiles, reflects in Acts 10, 37-38, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power, and he went about doing good, healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. So as a man, he drew upon the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish his will. So all this to say, this is an anointing where Jesus all of a sudden has special power to do ministry. He's able to do miracles which he did not do previously. And this is in accordance with what we read in Isaiah 42.1. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. This is more than a condemnation. God sent his spirit to empower the chosen one. This is an endorsement. And it's not just the spirit endorsing him. It's his words in 22. 
You are my beloved son. With you, I'm well pleased. Right? This is the voice from heaven. I mean, imagine the forefathers. Remember when they were on Mount Sinai and God actually spoke to all of them? And they were so terrified. They told Moses, we never want to hear that again. Have God talk to you and then you can talk to us. It's too powerful for us. Well, that same voice is speaking out of heaven and it is giving a commendation of Jesus. This is my beloved son. I am well pleased with him. He's done everything right. Clearly. This is uh, reminiscent of Psalm 2-7 where he says, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42-1, behold my servant whom I behold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him and he will bring forth justice to the nations. Now, this implies three things. One, God has a special love for Jesus. You can't claim to love, jo love God without loving Jesus. Right? Very important message as he's going to reach out to the Jewish nation, right? If you love God, you will love my son. Secondly, Jesus is the ultimate ruler. He is being declared king in this passage. And thirdly, Jesus was the obedient son God is not going to pass off his kingdom to some idiot but his beloved son with whom he is well pleased now we're entering a political season and during the primaries the most valuable thing a candidate can have would be an endorsement from some kingmaker if the kingmaker says I'm going to stand by this guy he will persuade others to vote for him as well. And so when it comes to Jesus, he has a divine endorsement. This is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And the spirit commends him and the father commends him. And Jesus' own life commends him as somebody worth the investment. Now going to the third point, we see that Jesus is worthy of the investment because he uh, is related to all mankind. Now, often when you encounter somebody who is great, there can be a question about whether or not he actually knows you or cares about you, right? But in the case of Jesus, he is not only a great man commended by God, he actually cares about humanity, he cares about, about you. He decided to go through the full human experience so that he can bring man and God together. This is where his, his humanness is so critical. And we see it starting verse 23. When Jesus began his ministry, he was about 30 years of age. 30 years of life was enough to prove that he was a real deal. Ezekiel started his ministry when he was 30. You're eligible to be a priest at the temple when you're age 30. And most importantly, David began his reign when he was 30. And so, Luke makes it very clear that his ministry started around 30. And then he gives a genealogy. Now, the Jews loved their genealogies. 
Who, were you, who you were related to often de- determined your occupation. It would determine who you live. It was, uh, gave you a sense of family identity. And so Luke gives a genealogy here. Now, if you've read the Gospel of Matthew, you know that there's a different genealogy in Matthew. And there's some obvious differences. Luke, for instance, starts uh, at the present and goes past. Matthew starts at the past and goes to the present. Luke's genealogy has 79 names. Matthew has 42. Matthew goes all the way back to Abraham. Luke goes all the way back to Adam. And then there's the difference. If you look, Joseph has a different father. And this has caused all kinds of discussion. And there's two theories that kind of work. One could be that Luke's genealogy is done through Mary, where Mary's dad didn't have a son, so he adopted Joseph as his son. And that explains why you have a different father. Whereas Joseph went through a line directly from David as well. Another theory is that one is the physical line and the other one is a, uh, a, a legal line. Perhaps they wanted to circumvent all of the kings in Luke because there is a curse on the last king listed in Matthew, Jeconiah, who was told he would never have an heir. There's all kinds of explanations for it, but I think either way, your bases are covered. Jesus is related to some key people. Namely, Joseph, right? He was a son, as was supposed, of Joseph. Now, that little phrase, as was supposed, why do you think that's there? He's making it clear that Jesus is born of a virgin. So even though he's a man in every way, he is set apart, he is different, he is born of a virgin conceived by the Holy Spirit. And even though everyone would assume this is Joseph's boy, we all know that he was really the Son of God, conceived through the Virgin Mary. Skipping to verse 31, we see that he was the son of Nathan, the son of David. Luke decided to not go through Solomon and all the kings, but he took a different route. But the most important relationship here is that he is the son of David. You can't have a Messiah unless he reigns on David's throne. Skipping to 34, He is the son of Jacob, the son of Isaac, the son of Abraham. He was a true Jew, a a Hebrew in every way. Being a son of Abraham through that line was extraordinarily important to be able to lead Israel. But then this is what I think the most important part of the genealogy, the last line. The son of Adam, the son of God. Jesus is the son of Adam. Now, when you think about it, did Adam have a race? Did Adam have an ethnicity? Did Adam have social status? The answer is no, he couldn't, right? He couldn't have an ethnicity because there's no one to distinguish him from. Now, he did have a gender that was different from Eve. That is there. But all these other little constructs that divide humanity into large swaths of people like Jews and Gentiles, none of that was true of Adam. And so Luke is making it very clear that he is the son of Adam. And this has three significant implications. Number one, 
the gospel and Jesus' ministry and his reign is to be extended to all people, to the Jews and the Gentiles. Remember when, when Jesus was uh, presented in the temple and Simeon is holding him and he, he gives this prophecy in 2.32 that he is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for your glory, people, and, and for glory to your people, Israel. He will be the savior of all people. Secondly, being a son of Adam helps us to understand what's about to happen. We're going to get into the three temptations of Jesus, right? Both of them were the sons of God. Both of them were born without a sinful nature. One succeeded, another one failed. And thirdly, being a son of Adam means that Jesus can solve the greatest problem given to all the sons and daughters of Adam. Now, if you were to ask people what is man's greatest problem, they might say lack of health care, the presence of war, drug abuse, global warming, infringement of our freedoms. But do you know what the greatest threat to humanity is? It's the wrath of God. It is the fact that human beings are estranged from their creator. We know that one, God is holy. He has no toleration of sin. He recoils at sin. We also know that humanity, since Adam, is sinful. If you don't believe that you're sinful, Give us about five minutes and we'll get you there, right? Do you, hold a, do you uh, abide by your own standards? What makes you think you abide by God's standards, right? So we have a holy God, we have unholy people, and as a result, there is an estrangement there that is to be made permanent unless something is done. And this is where we get into a very important concept in the Bible, one that Pete uh, alluded to when he read his passage, and that is of a priesthood. Now, a priest is a mediator, right? He's a go-between. If you have a marriage counselor, right, they're a mediator between a warring couple at times. The husband and wife don't trust each other, but they will trust the marriage counselor, and he leverages that relationship to try to heal that relationship. Now, when it comes to religion, if there's hostility between God and man, a priest serves as a go-between. He represents God to the people and the people to man. Now, to have a mediator between God and man, you have to have one that understands both parties. Now, clearly, Jesus understands God. He is the divine son of God, right? He is the one who was born of a virgin who existed before creation. Everything that's true of God is true of him. Now, why did he come to earth? It is so he can be a priest for man. He lived a life that was human in every sense. In Hebrews 2.17 it says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus had to have flesh and blood. This meant 
that he had to begin as a fertilized egg. It meant that he had to be knit together in his mother's womb. It meant that he had to make the journey to this earth through a birth canal before C-sections, mind you. It meant that he was nursed by his mother. It meant that he soiled his diapers. It meant that he had to stand and walk. It meant that he had to learn how to talk. It meant that his voice cracked. He was human in every way. And what this does is this makes him relatable where he understands us. He understands what it means to be a human. Now, in 1992, Ross Perot, George Bush, and Bill Clinton engaged in a town hall-style debate. And during this debate, a member of the audience asked the following question. How has the national debt personally affected each of your lives? And if it hasn't, how can you honestly find a cure for the economic problems of the common people if you have no experience with what is ailing them? I watched a replay of this. It's fascinating. It starts with Ross Perot. Ross Perot was a billionaire at that point. And he talks about how he can relate to the common man because he pretty much gave up his highly successful business and living the life of a billionaire to run for president. Big fail. George Bush didn't understand the question. And then he talks about how he can understand the plight of the common man because he reads mail in the White House. And then he thought about it and decided that the question's illegitimate because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, we all feel the effects of the recession. And then comes Bill Clinton. You almost saw him salivate at the opportunity that he was given. He goes up and he walks and he approaches this woman and says, so you know people who lost their jobs and lost their homes? And then he goes on about being the governor of a small state. He can't get a break from the federal government. And that when people are laid off in factories, he knows them by name. He talks about people who've had their small business dreams shattered. And he just goes on and on. And people are just eating it up. Because he can feel their pain. He can relate to the problems that they have. And that's what people were really drawn to as a leader, right? Regardless of how you feel about Bill Clinton, it was a brilliant work of political theater. So when it comes to Jesus, you know, there is this idea, can he feel my pain? Well, he experienced life in the fallen world. Jesus, as we'll see next week, or next time I preach, I'm going to be taking next week off. He knows the power of temptation. He knows what it's like to be hungry and thirsty and tired. He's experienced the agony of unanswered prayer. Have you ever been rejected by someone close to you? He knows that. Have you ever been treated unfairly? Has there ever been like a great miscarriage of justice? He understands that too. All that say, Jesus is relatable. He really can feel your pain. But there's another factor to consider. Being human means you can feel your pain. And empathy, what that does is it gives you comfort, right? But it won't solve your problem. 
It won't solve your problem. You can comfort people, but often that's just palliative care unless something is done to address the problem. And remember, what's our greatest problem? It's estrangement between God and man. The fact that God demands justice. He demands some payment, and the payment is death for our sin. And so this is what Jesus did. He lived that perfect life in our place, and then when he died, he died the death that you deserved. And get this, because he is the divine son of God, because he is someone of infinite worth and value, he was able to pay for your sins. So that when you believe in him and follow him, you can be forgiven. All this to say, what we see in the opening chapters is that Jesus identifies with sinners. He is the son of God, and he will leverage his divine sonship to advocate for the people that he loves and he cares about. That is the message that will be pulled through this gospel. And, and what's interesting is how people respond to this. People get an impression of Jesus. You think about the rich young ruler in Luke 18. You guys might know the story. If not, we'll get there in five years. But Luke records about this, this man who was successful, who feared the Lord. He went to church, so to speak. And, and he was so taken by Jesus that he asked him the most important question, what must I do to have eternal life? Assuming that he just had to do a little bit more. And, and Jesus asked him point by point through different commandments, have you done this? Have you done this? Have you done this? And then he detects that there's one thing that he hasn't done. This was a rich young ruler. He tells him, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Right? Repent of the hold that money has on you. See, what Jesus is saying is that if you want to invest in me, you have to pay the right currency. And that is your soul. And get this, Jesus doesn't break change. You can't give him half, half the soul to money and half the soul to Jesus. You have to give it to one or the other. And so he's challenging this man to make this commitment, to give this absolute commitment to him. He wouldn't do it. And then Peter, who had made that commitment, asked the logical question. See, we have left our homes and followed you. you know, we have done what you're asking him to do. The implication is, what's, what's the return? And this is what it comes down to. Why should you invest in Jesus? What will be the return? And this is what he says in Luke 18, 29 through 30. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time and in the age to come eternal life. And what's eternal life? It's knowing Jesus and being welcomed into that divine family in the presence of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit a world of love where you will be loved and love them and love others who are made like them forever. That is the payoff. Life will come and go. At some point in time, we'll breathe our last. Then we'll face judgment. And on that day, you will wish that you invested in Jesus. 
So I don't know if there's anyone here who perhaps are on the outside looking in, they're on the fence. And I'm not expecting some immediate result that you'll convert right now. But what I want to challenge you to do is not reject it, to consider it, because this is the most important decision you have to make in your life, is where are you with the Lord? You're either estranged or you're reconciled. And the only way to be reconciled is through Jesus Christ, who identifies with sinners, who identified with sinners on the cross, who was raised from the dead, who God accepts as full payment for your sin because he was the divine son of God. Let's pray. Well, Father, we come before you grateful for the impression that we get of Jesus. And Lord, this is just a foretaste of more to come, of the greatness, the grandeur, and the wonder of the divine Son of God, the perfect man, the perfect Savior, and one who came to earth, even though he never had to, to redeem the people for his own possession. And I pray for anyone here who's on the fence that they will not let it slide, that this will pique their curiosity, and that they will embrace a full-on, righteous, right, God-fearing relationship with you. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen.